You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm sometimes your host, but today I'm your co-host. This is Dimitri Vitsa, the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors, the music tech PR firm. And I am Trister Newyear Jaeger, your also occasional host and uh, strangely enough co-hosting with Dimitri for the first time in a long time. I mean, it's like there's been a pandemic, but we've been doing stuff remotely. So I don't even know why we haven't done this. I know. I know. It just, it's just kind of like, you go do this thing now. Um, so yeah, and I'm director of strategy at Rock, Paper, Scissors. And then we have a third co-host... I am Shaylee. I'm the conference planner uh, for Music Tectonics, and I'm so excited to be here today. What, what? Is this your first podcast, Shaylee? So. It's this a debut. This is my first podcast. Yes. yes, this is my debut podcast. I'm in a closet in Florida, so <laughs> super excited to be here. We're dropping an NFT. Regardless of location, yeah. We're going to drop an NFT to uh, commemorate this amazing, amazing event. All right. Amazing. Well, you yes. know, it's funny, and, and we used to do a little bit more of these news roundups, but if you are um, the kind of music person that talks about the industry, the way that sports fans talk about teams. This is the episode (laughs) for you. This is a Music Tectonics News Roundup. We've got a bunch of articles. We we just kind of pay attention to the industry as a PR company. Um, We're often looking at the media to see how stories are unfolding and how we can insert our clients into the mix. But we're also looking for insights about the industry and sharing articles with clients and with our community. And so we've dug in and found um, a real kind of a cool mix today. And the first one, we'll just dive in if you guys are ready for this. Let's go for it. Um, the first one's from the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's a it's a piece uh, by Neil Shaw called Music Fans Have a New Problem. Too many concerts, too little time. Um, and uh, it's kind of an interesting problem. Yeah, it's. I think it's a very unexpected problem, even though we should have all expected it. And it's coming at a time when there's a lot of desire on thinking on the part of fans to go out and hear music, but then it's also really hard <laughs> to catch all the stuff you've been wanting to catch. And then there's also, it's such a strange moment um, because on the other hand, you have touring bands and while some of the bigger names, I'm, well, I'm sure it actually matters to them as well, but for indie bands, we've got a really thin margin on touring, um, you know, the, the, gas prices, inflation when it comes to food costs, et cetera, have been really putting a damper on their spirits. So the fact that that fans might be overwhelmed with choice at the same time as artists are kind of struggling to make ends meet on tour, this could be a really weird moment um, right when we're all excited about things restarting. Well, and it feels like it's related to the hurry up and stop, hurry up and go, mm. stop and go aspect of this entire pandemic because, you know, you can't just start touring again. You have to plan it. So you have to start to think about, well, when is when is the, the all clear sign going to happen? Then another variant came along and so forth. So there's a lot of people who like jumped in a little too soon and then they ended up pushing their tours to 2023 now because they then they got kind of burned. They got scared. Um, and it's funny, the article starts off by quoting a, a 20 year old student about all the hard um, choices to make between these concerts. I'm thinking, wait a second, the pandemic's been going on for two years now. That student didn't have this problem pre-pandemic. So it's like, Mm, you know, for some people, this is the first, you know, for a a key target market for live music, this is the first time that they've had this amount of choice as well, which is kind of interesting. But the article just goes on and, and talks about, you know, whether this is a new renaissance in live music or, you know, whether this overbooking of 
concerts is now creating a problem on the sales front, you know? Yeah. It's that interesting dilemma. Yeah, I think definitely it's probably causing a problem now, but, you know, we're just fresh. We're not even out of the pandemic yet. We're just kind of maybe at the tail end. So, you know, I think it's super expected to feel this surge, you know, in 2022 and even 2023. But I think we could maybe anticipate it dying down a little bit or a return to some sense of previous normalcy. Yeah, I, I, it's going to be so interesting to see, like, even just this summer, you know, what, what happens, you know. Um, Shaylee, you and I are just back from South by Southwest, so we got a taste of being at shows, seeing people in person, industry folks as well. Super, super fun and exciting. Feels so good to be back at shows. But we even saw, you know, some festivals last year kind of come out with a, a vaccine card policy um, or test policy and, and um, didn't end up being super spreader events either. Um, so I do I do think it's it's looking like um, that aspect of it is mostly covered. I mean, if another variant comes, you know, knock on wood. Interesting, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <It was> dramatic. <laughs> right. <laughs> Knocking on wood connected the, to mics. <laughs> I was going to say the knock at the knock heard around the internet there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, but, you know, uh, hopefully we've got that aspect of the, the safety part covered. Um, so now we just have to deal with the economic, the, the, the fluctuation between supply and demand of concerts. Yeah. The, the, you know, it was, it was kind of amazing how many studies were done on, you know, disease transmission in live settings. So it's kind of cool because that's really important work, not just for COVID, but for any future, like, you know, your, your city's having a flu up outbreak. Do you need to change policies in, in live venues? I don't know. It could be, could be useful in general, but, um, it's, it'll be very, very interesting to see how artists fare. Uh, through this time. Yeah. Another thing that was pointed out in that article was, you know, Tristra, you chatted about how gas prices have gone up and, you know, other prices for the artist. But this article also talked a little bit about how the prices of the tickets are going up. I think it said it prices have gone up like 14% since the end of 2000, from 2019 to 2021, which, you know, that's something else to consider when, you know, me as an attendee is going to a concert. Like you have to choose. You can't go to all of the ones that you maybe want to go to because they're also rising in price. Yeah, definitely. So um, let's jump to our next story, which is kind of, well, actually, you know, there's one last thing I want to say about this, which is um, I, I think we've got on the schedule an interview with Fabrice Sargent from Bands in Town. And I, I think that'll be really interesting to oh, hear yeah. from his perspective because he gets a macro view on all the concert discovery and how, how much touring there is and, you know, across multiple ticketing platforms and venues and venue owners and promoters. Um, so stay tuned for that coming up in a few weeks as well. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see their point of view over the next couple of months and like what they're seeing on on bands in town. Yeah, they've got early indicator information. Now, if we go back digital, which we talk about a lot here, um, Trisha, you found a really interesting article from somebody I had not seen before, a guy named Michael Beausoleil. Um, it was a Medium post, 10.medium.com. Yeah, that's a, that's an on, like a, an on Medium um, sort of magazine right. that covers digital and 
you know, internet culture and his, his article was called, Why Are YouTube Views Tanking? Creators are complaining about YouTube views going down, yet more people are joining the pa- platform. What's going on? Yeah, it was a weird article because it, I mean, not, not no offense, Michael, I don't mean your, your article is weird, but it was an article that pointed out something really unusual that I haven't really heard anywhere else. Um, and that was that... Uh, views for what's traditionally been really successful categories on YouTube, like music videos and um, certain kinds of vlog-esque creator content um, of the more traditional, it's funny to call a YouTube video traditional, but uh, the more traditional kind, um, are, are they're falling in terms of views and channels are really suffering. At the same time, there are more and more users on YouTube. So what are they watching is the question because they're clearly not watching the stuff that used to be super successful. So um, he gives some great examples about Adele's music videos and just how, you know, you went from Hello to, um, oh my God, I can't even think of her latest release. Sorry, Adele. Easy I guess, on me. Easy on me. There we go. Um, that and, and how it's barely, you know, it's garnered a fraction of the views. I mean, still doing pretty darn Still well. 260 not million bad. views, but not the not billion, billion that, that it the, got the, the in 70 got. some odd days. So, um, so it's something interesting is going on and, you know, music has been such a solid category on YouTube for so long. Um, and what I'm basically one of its biggest, it's great because it drives, it's, they're short, you know, music videos that tend to be as long as a track, um, maybe a little longer. And so that means they're cheap to host and people really like them and they're great. It's easy to place ads against most music, right? It's not going to have some super crazy political content that's going to make an advertiser lose their cool. <laughs> and, and music also, not only because it's short, but because it's the it's catchy, people like to watch more than once. Yeah, you that's know? true. It's really hard to watch like your favorite Minecraft guy play <laughs> like, you know, exactly or do like the but cake if, icing challenge. If your 50... Minecraft guy is playing for, you know, a three hour video, that yeah. was also what, well, yeah, what the article chatted about was, you know, a, a huge portion of views on YouTube have come from the gaming industry, not only the gaming industry, but, you know, YouTube has movies out there now and some other TV shows. And so while people are still consuming the same maybe amount of time of media, they're not consuming the same amount of videos because previously they were, you know, watching several different four minute music videos, but now they're watching a three hour Minecraft video, you know, or a two hour Harry Potter movie or something like that on YouTube. Or just judging by my children's behavior, which is always, you know, I have a sample size of two, so bear that in mind. But, um, you know, they they watch these like little meme videos and that they all have the same format and they all have the same music and they go over and over again, like with like Mr. Incredible and all sorts of weird stuff. But like, it, I don't so get is that YouTube or is that TikTok? That's YouTube. Oh, hmm. And it, they're about like a minute and a half to two minutes long. Hmm. And there's just a gazillion of them. So that's what they like. They like to watch stuff like that as opposed to, or like weird old ads from the eighties. Like they, anyway. Yeah. So Michael Beausoleil, you should have, you should have interviewed (laughs) Trishka's kids. But I I think, I I mean, going off of what Shaylee said, videos are getting longer. Mm -hmm. Um, YouTube is, is pushing, uh, allowing for that, but also kind of optimizing for that, including pushing the TV streaming model as well. So you know, if YouTube was losing market share to say net Netflix, Disney, Apple TV, HBO Max, they're thinking in terms of well, there's a long form opportunity there too, and there's nothing wrong with um, long form content on YouTube if they're either paying for if they're getting paid for subscriptions or getting ad revenue because you know YouTube will interrupt your longer video with more ads. Mm-hmm. Um, but then 
the, another interesting thing it brought up, and not, not to move too quickly if you guys have stuff to say about the long-form content, but, but was that people are getting used to music streaming services outside of YouTube. And so if they were using YouTube for free and they age out of the free version and they want to start paying for ad-free content, they might jump to Apple Music or mm -hmm. Spotify or Tidal or so, something like Amazon or something like that. And so then their YouTube viewing changes as a result. And is it, it'll be interesting to see if this trend continues or is it going to settle out as like a certain number of people migrated to um, DSPs versus YouTube. The other thing that's interesting, and this will make this a very interesting future for TikTok video times are expanding. So I think it's up to... Help me here. More. Help me here, young people. <laughs> I don't know. I don't use TikTok. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's like even, I mean, part of me wants to say an hour, but that, that sounds so crazy, but like really, really long TikToks, which will be interesting to see how do people use that. I mean, is it going to be like Instagram yeah, Reels where you're kind of forcing people into it, but they're not really all that into it? I don't know. It's going to be yeah, interesting. I am interested in Instagram Reels. I don't have TikTok because I say it'll take too much time, but then I get sucked into Instagram Reels. Um, <laughs> I think kind of it's not a surprise maybe that YouTube has gone to more long, longer videos because of these emerging platforms like Instagram Reels and TikTok. And you can find your shorter form videos on, you know, like you said, your sons watch memes or like those kind of mm -hmm. things on YouTube. And, you know, maybe your sons are still on YouTube, but like a lot of those people are finding that kind of content on a TikTok mm -hmm. or on Instagram Reels. And they're, you know, they don't need YouTube for that kind of content anymore. Yeah, I do. I think it's interesting that um, this author did not mention TikTok a single time in this article. And I think if there's views getting lost, we know that, you know, the, the teenage set, the early 20s and beyond now at this point, obviously, but certainly in those places, TikTok's growth is huge. So, of course, that's I mean, they're they're the biggest kind of infringer on YouTube, in my opinion. Um, YouTube also has YouTube shorts. My my 13 year old son, when, whenever you talk about, well, actually, until a couple of months ago, whenever you talk about TikTok or Instagram reels, he's like, yeah, but YouTube shorts has that too. That's growing as well. Um, but now he does have TikTok and I am seeing him more often on TikTok, TikTok as well. Um, but it was interesting that that didn't come up in the article. At yeah. All. Yeah. It was, it was very interesting. But there's, you know, as Mark Mulligan, who who spoke at our first Music Tectonics conference in 2019, said, you see these trends that are downward trends or upward trends, but that it does, it's not a it's not a switch that flips all at once. So mm -hmm. there's constantly this these different sized audiences. You know, radio is shrinking, but it hasn't shrunk. It's not gone. Commercial radio is still mm -hmm. in existence. There's still lots of ads getting sold there. But of course, every move Spotify makes to pull people away from radio and do the the podcast thing and integrate podcasts with music um, you know Sirius XM dug it you know dug into to traditional terrestrial radio as well so these things change over time and then eventually you have like a variety a very a diverse set of options and so that's what we're seeing with um, the the creator economy of video and social video and video sharing and video streaming I mean you know this whole article has nothing to do with live streaming but YouTube live streaming is competing with twitch and Instagram and all the other things that we we've talked about here too so did we hit it all on the on the YouTube uh, shifts in in data about viewership there I think we hit it and we can quit it all right well yeah. when we, we're, we're gonna, let's take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna yeah we're gonna talk about web 3 we'll Sorry. be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor here. 
Tickets are on sale now for the 2022 Music Tectonics Conference. Music tech innovators will gather in person October 25th through the 27th by the beach in the Los Angeles area. Join us at a special early bird rate, $249. The first 25 to register get a super early bird rate, just $199. Get to musictectonics.com to snap up your conference ticket at a great price. Your ticket gets you in to three days of programming in Santa Monica, California. Join us for panels, keynotes, exhibitors, a startup pitch competition, networking, and connecting. We've selected offbeat venues in easy walking distance of each other and the beach. If you're not getting my newsletter, head over to musictectonics.com now and sign up. You'll get updates on the music tech and innovation programming we're planning for this year's conference and more. See you in California this October. Okay, we are back. Um, Super fun talking about the live industry, about some shifts in YouTube viewership. And um, we want to jump into the the Web3 portion of stuff. There was this article in Sync Tank that um, I think kind of uh, talked about those shifts that we were just talking about with with YouTube and other video platforms. Um, But now with the Web3 stuff, it was called Web3 Casting, Music Companies Preparing for the Next Revenue Boom. Is it Eamon Ford? I think that's how you pronounce his name. Mr. Ford, let us know if we got it wrong, but... So that article came out a couple of a couple of weeks ago on Sync Tank. Yeah, and and what? You- <laughs> yeah. So well, <laughs> here, here's how it starts. As the major music companies continue to develop their Web three strategies, Eamon Ford explores the significant potential for revenue generation and long term industry growth, and uh, he captures. Uh, quotes from some of the, the major label significant companies kind of about how they're thinking and talking about this stuff um, as well. Uh, at He says, at the start of 2021, few people outside of a niche tech bubble really knew what NFTs were. By the end of 2021, pretty much everyone in music knew what NFTs were or certainly had heard of them and could at least pretend to know what they were. <laughs> <laughs> the boom in revenues related to NFTs as well as the boom in the sheer number of them being created and sold in 2021 was what convinced the music music business at large, that Web3 should be key to its future. And, you know, it's cool that he starts out this way because previous, quote, disruptive technologies didn't get early adoption Mm -hmm. um, by the music space. But I also think that we are at this moment where um, there are early adopters and and, uh, creators and and people that are on this side of the business. But uh, at the same time, there are industry folks who are saying, oh, we, we need to jump on this. We need to pay attention to this. So he quotes some some major label folks um, that are sort of hinting at what's to come, that they're not inherently sue first, sort it out later <laughs> at this point, but more like, oh, shoot, this is a shift that's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of significant because um, it is kind of seen as a direct-to-fan uh, new medium in a way. Yeah. And so to have labels say, okay, how are we going to address this is a really important piece. And 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 the the NFT Web3 stuff is not as easy to, to put out as a record at this point, right? There's some complicated technology that you kind of have to get up to speed with. The interesting thing too, I think you really hit the nail on the head, is that this is all being 
driven so far. I mean, there are some, you know, advertisements for hires at Spotify and stuff like there are, there is in-house activity, but a lot of it's being done through partnerships. So signing deals with different companies, um, you know, you know, creating these relationships early on. And that is a huge sea change, right? On one hand, you used to have the, like the, the tech disruptors who are like, you know, put the product out and get the licenses later. And then you had the labels that were like, sue first, ask questions later. And it was a really, you know, unsustainable uh, situation. And now it's like, you know, whatever, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years have gone by, however many years, many, many years. And we are seeing the second a new technology that looks promising comes online, like the folks are starting to start, I mean, at least on the corp, the, the, at the corporate level, people are getting really interested in trying to build relationships fairly early. The other thing is, I think we're looking at a bit of a hard fork to not be too obnoxiously uh, cute about it um, in um, in the way people are imagining Web3 in music. And there's on one hand, there's this sort of grassroots like maker community that wants to make really cool things that wants to run it themselves. They want to control it themselves. They're really interested in the, the actual technology and how to master it and how to make the most of it and build community and do neat new things that'll let people do other really cool new things. Um, so I'm thinking about the the RACs of the world and folks like our, our uh, you know, folks like Hi-Fi Labs and all, all the DAOs out there that are really trying to do something innovative um, from the grassroots. And then you have these sort of bigger corporate plays. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens because... I mean, there's, there's, it, it, this is, I think, uh, well, I don't know. I think you could make the argument that digital music had a similar thing. Like you could just like put your MP3 on a blog and people could download it. Um, so, and then, you know, what's going to happen with this, these two different worlds? Are they going to inform each other? Are they going to diverge? Like it's, it's kind of interesting. You, you know, that just made me think of something that I hadn't thought of that's different about NFTs and MP3s. Uh, when you say, oh, you could put your MP3 on a blog and, and download it. It, um, it's not, you can't do that with NFTs, right? You actually, it actually, you have to invest something in them. So you're obviously mm -hmm. investing something in the recording of, uh, of your tracks or something yes. like that. But then to upload an MP3 is not really expensive, but to, to mint NFTs, you actually have to, you do have to make an investment. Yeah. And then, you know, with the, it, there's almost like a built-in value chain of a sort with it. And there's this, there's a different control um, then you'd have over, like you have no control over the MP3 format nor over the blog platform that you use. But the idea, I, you know, the ideal with these decentralized technologies is that the technology allows you that control and it's sort of just baked in that, you know, no matter what other layers you may put on top of it, the, the essence is this kind of thing that you can control and own completely. Um, but that, yeah, it will be really interesting to see how all this plays out. And one of the things that interested me about the, the article, um, and, and it's worth checking out on Sync Tank's blog is that, uh, I guess it's Sync blog. I keep saying Sync Tank, but it's their blog. So I guess they call it Sync blog. Sync blog, yeah. yeah. Um, was that it, you know, it starts off with talking about how Warner Music's CEO, Steve Cooper is talking about this and how, um, Lucian Grange from UMG is talking about this, but it also quotes Dean Wilson, uh, Dead Mouse's manager, who we just had on the podcast not too long ago. And so it's interesting to hear how somebody like Dean Wilson 
will say this is breaking the this is breaking the industry model. This is great. This is the best thing for artists. And then to hear these major labels also saying, yeah, we're lean, you know, we're leaning into this a little less specificity around some <laughs> of it. But like Steve Cooper from Warner said, labels and publishers will be more important than they are today as the world becomes more and more complex, hmm. which is sort of implying it might seem like this is easy to do, but there's other stuff to do as well. Um, you know, harder stuff for artists to to um, execute. For sure. Yeah. I think the most exciting thing for me in this space is just how new it is. We talked to South by a lot about how, you know, everyone was skeptical of Napster and like that came out and stuff. And now, you know, Web3 and NFTs have been introduced. And of course, everyone's really skeptical about them because they're new and no one, you know, there's a lot of articles about there and there's a lot of buzzwords around NFTs and stuff. But I just think it's really exciting and also maybe a little bit intimidating to the labels like, oh, wow, artists are going to get this direct like fan engagement. And where will that leave us? Like, you know, are NFTs or something like that going to cut out, you know, the the label from the artist? Yeah, totally. I, I mean, that's that's like this pendulum that we keep seeing in the industry as new technologies emerge. A lot of times the technology comes from outside of the traditional label and publisher world. And either that has to be fought sometimes around copyright and licensing and royalties or adopted quickly. And it seems like there's a little bit of a shift. Um, it's definitely intimidating, like you described, Shaley. And we're hearing, I mean, one of the things he points out in the article is sort of like, if you look at the hiring at some of these labels and publishers, they actually have Web3 related positions that are merging. I mean, he talks about primary wave, um, kind of taking advantage of Web3 and, and having a specific strategy around that as well. But um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if the labels and publishers um, move fast enough to continue to sort of own that market share of monetization of yeah. recorded music versus... Yeah, the, the I, like monetizing IP via Web3 is, I mean, everyone's getting in on it from like Warner Brothers putting out like um, Matrix NFTs. I just saw that Paramount is putting out um, like Star Trek ones where you can like make your own starship and mint it as an NFT. Um, you know, so every, like all these companies with all these, they're sitting on these huge vaults of IP, like random IP bits and pieces are using Web3. And at the same time, it's like, this is supposed to also liberate artists on a really in a really direct way, kind of like that a little bit of that libertarian creative commons kind of vibe. So, I mean, it's almost like we have two like I have like vibe collision here. <laughs> like, and where will it, how will it get sorted out? Maybe it'll get sorted out in a thousand different ways. Like, you know, I think it just, will. Yeah, it's just interesting. Yeah. And, and uh, we also have this article from Axios by Brady Dale called Web2 Giants Playing Catch Up on Cryptocurrency, which just as this is happening in the in the record industry, like you're saying, Shaley, there's all these, you know, these other platforms, the the Facebooks and the and the Googles and, and social Twitter and then the the Reddits, the eBay, Microsoft, I mean, you yeah. know, all sorts of people trying yeah. to figure out what to do with this thing. That article is a fun, like quick, yeah. like bullet of each one, what they're doing and, and kind of, I mean, a little snarky, that's okay. Um, you know, Twitter made a special emoji for Bitcoin forever ago. It says recently it has offered a tipping function in Bitcoin. Plus users who want to show off a favorite NFT can verify they own it. And then 
eBay makes NFTs available to buy on the site, but don't look for any of these to be the next Bored Apes. Um, <laughs> oh, man. That's the, everyone that's just gold. wants in. They yeah. just are jumping, you know? It's so new and everyone wants to get in because they don't want to miss out. The biggest dig is at the end of the article, um, towards the end, I think, where they talk about uh, the most epic crypto flame out in Web 2 award without a question goes to the company now known as meta oh, which man. launched libra changed it to dm and then finally sold it for parts in february and now now they're back to zuck bucks but i think that's an in-app currency not a not a, a standalone I, I think they're i don't know if that's the actual official name but every i've I seen it covered know. everywhere as zuck bucks and uh, just here's another fun fact i saw this in the new york times apparently um uh there's that there everyone calls um uh, Zuckerberg at, you know, lovingly, he says, refers to him as the Eye of Sauron. Lovingly. <laughs> uh, I promise we will never refer to you as the Eye of Sauron lovingly. <laughs> Dimitri. Thank you. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors. Okay. We... <laughs> All right. Moving on. <laughs> and that's it for this episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bye, Tristram. <laughs> so, I think, yeah, I'm just about to be thrown into the pit of the of the Dark Tower or something. Anyway, anyway one, one, one last article that um, really gets into the weeds and and then we'll move move, move on was from Andreessen Horowitz which you know it's so interesting they write really compelling yeah. contextual context about some of these industry shifts um you know, you know sometimes you might read some articles and say um there's a lot of uh, uh, buzzwords in there, but they're actually explaining them if, yeah. you, if you if you stick with it. This one was called the NFT Mint, quote, sweet spot, data on early decisions by Darren Matsuka, which is actually a summary of research that, that Darren did. Do you remember what this one was? Yes, I do. And um, it's from, like, Andreessen Horowitz has a sort of standalone media outlet now called Future, and they do publish a lot of interesting either essays, think pieces, or some really technical stuff like this that involves research into like how how do you how should you mint how many uh, NFTs should you mint how should you approach these things so I just was thinking it was super interesting how nuanced we're getting about mm. this and quite quickly um, trying to pr and then, you know I, we talk to a lot of people who are trying to figure this out in the music space and pricing is a very interesting question and trying to understand the motivations of a potential buyer are they speculators, which there are a lot of speculators in the space, and you kind of have to acknowledge they exist and work with them. Or are they fans? Are they people who are just like really want that, I don't know, NFT, and they're, they have 50 bucks and they're just, they want it, you know, because it means something to them or it helps them get a t-shirt or they get to go to the VIP party at some, you know, their local concert or whatever. So it, these, all these nuances are really interesting. And, and I'm kind of glad that people are digging in and talking about them so early. I feel like they're a bunch of good tools evolving for folks who really want to work in this space, you know, rationally. <laughs> I think that's what's also really exciting is that the possibilities are endless, you know, and NFTs are a whole new revenue stream. Like they're not there to compete with your recorded music right. or, you know, they're not there. And I think that sometimes that can be a little intimidating. Um, but yeah, like this is NFTs are going to allow for so many new opportunities for, artists and it's exciting. I, I think you're getting to a really good, uh, interesting part that doesn't often get talked about in, in a more conversational way in the music space, which is that this is not just a switch of formats, which is mm -hmm. what we've seen in the past from vinyl to 
eight tracks to CDs, <laughs> to cassettes, <laughs> to downloads, to streams, to NFTs. NFTs is sort of going beneath the surface of the format itself, which is where I think you're talking about the excitement comes from. And it doesn't, ha and, and Trista, as you're saying, which I think this article brought up, it also questions whether there's a uniform price because in each of those format shifts, there would be a pretty quick consensus about what is the format and how much it, does it cost. And Shaylee, you're saying the format is not always the same. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. compete with listening to music or a track and each one doesn't, you know, one of them might feel like a collectible trading card type mm -hmm. experience, but one of them might be a VIP experience. And one of them might be more metadata that you didn't even know mm -hmm. you wanted until it comes <laughs> in the form of playlists or, you know, like live show playlists or videos or things like that. So that's what's, I think that's where people are maybe moving a little quicker on it. It's like, it's not a shift to a format, but it's like the new market. It's, it's, it's a shift of commerce. It's a shift of the way that people are going to buy and, and and sell music. I mean, it's almost like you, you know, when it comes to things like commodities, I was talking with someone about this a couple months ago where it's like, you know, you used to just sell the pork bellies, then you sold what the pork bellies will sell for, right? So like you can put whole new layers of financial instruments, which, you know, we, you may like or dislike, but what, what NFTs are doing is they're adding an additional commerce layer that is completely different from the layer below it. And it's connected, but not completely. Totally. Yeah. And I just think that people also are kind of intimidated on, on like how to market your NFTs. I was reading an article that talked about like previously, you know, you would reach out to the store and be like, hey, I'll pay you extra to put my CDs on the front, you know, in the front of the display case or whatever. Right. And now it's like, well, how do you how do you market an NFT? Like, what audience do I reach? Where do I where do I find that audience? A Discord, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some Twitter. You can tweet about it. So to to wrap up on this article, um, the the they politely put a TLDR at the end, which is awesome. <laughs> but um, it, low mint prices correlated to higher return multiples for early backers. So this is the, you know I don't, whether whether these people are speculative or not in terms of investors, but. The fact that um, if you had a lower mint prices, it allowed for these higher return when you resold it a second time for the early backers. It's like how mm -hmm. do you, it's kind of related to the marketing actually in a sense. Like if there's enough value still left there for them to make when they resell it, they might jump in quicker. It also says that many of today's most vibrant secondary markets had very little in primary sales revenue, so they that's didn't make, really make a ton in, of that's money. That's such an interesting point. Yeah, but then later it it really took off. And we're hoping. I think that's the hope for a lot of folks with music NFT projects is that they can jumpstart that secondary market and really get that going because that's really where the exciting um, revenue streams for artists and producers and for the marketplaces themselves is going to be so. Do we want to say anything else about Web3? We didn't do much metaverse talk here. <laughs> oh, we'll talk. We'll save the metaverse for some other time. Um, meanwhile, I'm just going to take my uh, my uh, disembodied torso out of the out of the metaverse. Move on. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, our friend and past speaker and uh, podcast guest Will Page from Tarzan Economics did a really interesting piece where he reanalyzed some old copyright value data. We'll get to that after this break. Whoa, the ideas are flying fast on this episode. If you want to follow up on anything we're talking about today, we've made it easy. Head over to musictectonics.com and find this episode on the podcast page. You'll see show notes full of links and a timestamp roadmap of the conversation. We're not responsible for internet rabbit holes you tumble down in the process. Now, let's get back to the conversation.
All right, we're back. So Will Page from Tarzan Economics, former chief uh, economist? Uh, economist from Spotify <laughs> and regular speaker at Music Tectonics conferences and events and so forth, uh, recently, um, just a couple weeks ago, put out a piece called Global Value of Music Copyright is Bigger Now Than It's Ever Been. And uh, yeah, he, he kind of looks back at some, some, some data to compare where we are now in 2020 with where we were in 2001. Um, and if you look at directly at the, the, the data, luckily he has a nice little graph in there. The global <laughs> value of music copyright in 2001, he says, was $28.3 billion. And 77% of that went to labels and 23% of that went to publishing. And then for 2020, the global value of music copyright was $32.5 billion, and 65% of that went to labels, and 35% of that went to publishing. And this is super interesting because it's been a constant battle ever since streaming has mm -hmm. be, been defined to become the primary revenue stream for recorded music about what... who. What's the right share between labels and publishers? Because the rules changed suddenly, and yeah. then you know, kind of laws had to, to follow suit um, after after it already took off. So um, I'm curious about your takeaway well, from that. I think Will is really explaining why people got excited about investing in catalogs and buying up catalogs, um, both really notable ones and ones that were a mixed bag, um, and. It's so interesting. Now, you know, there's some talk about there being a slight cooling in that activity due to interest rates rising worldwide. But it, it's it, but I think Will is saying there is just huge long term value. And, you know, will this continue? Was this just like a paradigm shift where and now it's like that those those shares are going to stay the same? Or are we going to keep seeing? I wish I wish Will were here because I'd like to ask him about his <laughs> though. He may not speculate on Mike, but um, it would be fun to see his to hear his take on why. Um, and what he sees for the future, like, is this something we can project into the future? Or is this just something that happened and we'll just have to wait and see? Or, yeah, it's super, super interesting. Um, and and I think, I mean, folks like um, Bruno uh, Guez from uh, um, from Revelator have said that, that he believes that it's going to continue. Like, there's way more value in music IP that has been yet, that is sort of yet to be fully embraced by the industry. So there's a lot of unreported revenue there or revenue that's kind of trickling away somewhere, revenue that could be better. I know. So I think we're, we've just gotten to the point where we can really start to see these things because I mean, poor Will had to like dig around and it was like going to some used bookstore or something mm -hmm. and, like digging up reports from like the 2000s that were in hard copy and like there's some pretty, it was like the crate digging of uh, music economics here. Which, which is pretty cool because <laughs> I mean, Shaylee, you got to hang out with Will at South By. He is a music crate digger as well. Oh, that's he's awesome. A, he's, a, he's a great DJ. He's got some great um, mixes on Mixcloud as well. Um, uh, so it's interesting to think about that. He went from crate digging to, to well, data digging. Maybe you have to get him back and have him do some deep cuts for, <laughs> for sure. weird weird statistics from the music industry you didn't know you needed. <laughs> yeah. When, awesome. when will the streaming services be able to do unified mixes with AI from uh, our friends at Super Hi-Fi that mixes together data and uh, tracks. <laughs> <laughs> this track has been played 75% more. Thanks to, yeah. Anyway, it could be interesting. <laughs> this track brought the publishers <laughs> yeah. 33%. That's what I want. I want 35. the like real time stats like recited between songs. Oh man. Um, if you played this song a thousand more times, the artist would get. 
Beep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. By the way, I mentioned that was written by Will Page, but also with Shannon Nitroy to give credit where credit is. Yeah, but that's awesome. Will will probably hear this and, and tell us what... Uh, what he thought of this this coverage? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. I I, I welcome I welcome uh, more Tarzanian commentary. Oh, absolutely. So I wanted to ask. I, we've got maybe just to wrap it up. There's something that's a little bit lighter, mm-hmm. um, and that was I saw an amazing blog post from uh, a guy I don't know whose name is. Uh, I think you have the the article in front oh, of you there. Oh, was this the, the artificial truth? Yeah, that yeah, it's yeah. the the blog is called Artificial Truth. I mean, I, I don't read it regularly. I think I picked it up from a newsletter, you know. Um, but it has a wonderful list of all of. Oh yeah, his name is uh, Julian Julian Voisin. Okay. And he has a list of like incredible. Um, well, you know, here, let's just let me just frame this by saying artists are going to be super artistic and metadata has to deal with that. So <laughs> the article is called Horrible Edge Cases to Consider When Dealing with Music. So um, he basically lists all of the incredible difficulties we have from, you know, the p- the police's synchronicity having 36 cover variations to uh, album names that are just symbols to the fact that there are about 50,000 groups around the world who go by the name Emperor. And so that's everything from like kids music to um, black metal. So it's just a really, really fun read. And it's definitely there for anybody who appreciates, um, you know, the challenges of metadata. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like it's basically like a sh- like something that people who who work with music metadata could take to a party and just be like, well, if you want to know what I do for a living, look at this list of totally incomprehensible symbols that make up this artist's name and every single track on every single album they've ever put out. So yeah, tracks that don't have names. Uh, I think there was Aphex Twin had some tracks, yeah. some albums with with tr- some of the tracks had names, some of them didn't. <laughs> um, like, tra- tracks that symbols. had like twenty. 20, or albums that had 20 tracks that had several tracks that just had silence for multiple <laughs> seconds, but no explanation of why or, you know, which ones had music and which ones didn't. Or the artist that has a name and every album has that same name and every track on every album has that same name and they have several <laughs> albums. It's just like, it, again, if you're looking for a, if you're looking for a way to, to, you know, lighten your mood, um, maybe not if you work in metadata, cause this might make you cry, but for the rest of us, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun read and we'll definitely post links to all these articles in our show notes, but good times. Yeah, definitely. Wacky music metadata. Well, that was a blast. So great to have you on the show for, together. What am I talking about? You're on the show more yeah. than me these days. Well, so well, glad to have me on be, the show. It's great to be together and to get to talk about all this fun stuff. Absolutely. Give people a little bit of a window of what it's like at the Rock, Paper, Scissors office. And, <laughs> and Shaylee, your debut. Thanks for joining us. Yay. Yeah, definitely. It was kind of fun. I can't wait to be back. And don't forget, Music Tectonics just made our debut announcement of our 2022 Woo-hoo. conference happening October 25th through 27th in Santa Monica, California. She's got to plug it. She's our conference planner. Good job. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. We'll be back with another one soon. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know? You can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. 
While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics.